Good evening. Uh, welcome to you all. My name is uh, Fawaz Jerjes, and I teach the modern Middle East here uh, at the LSE. It really gives me great pleasure uh, to introduce our distinguished uh, speaker tonight, uh, Professor Sadiq Jalal uh, Al Azm, uh, a professor, uh, a public intellectual, uh, an educator, uh, and a philosopher. Uh, who has really made a critical contribution uh, to Arab political thought, to Arab liberal thought, um, as well as uh, Western social uh, sciences. Uh, Professor Al-Azam does not really need much introduction. Most of you know uh, his contribution, his books, uh, what he has done in the last uh, 40 years. But I want to just say a few words for some of you students who do not really uh, what kind of universities he taught at in the last uh, 40 years. For many years he taught at uh, uh, modern European philosophy uh, at the University of Damascus. That's really your home. Uh, he is currently uh, a fellow at the University of Bonn and he asked me specifically to say that he is a fellow at the Advanced uh, Center. Center of Please. Advanced Studies. Uh, at Bonn University. He also taught at Princeton University in the 1980s. He taught at the University of Beirut uh, uh, early on in the 1960s. And of course, he taught at the University of Hamburg and other uh, institutions. I would argue, and I know I wish I had the time, I, I, I don't have the time, that uh, Professor Al-Azam's contribution truly transcends the academic field. Most of us academics are very narrowly based. Uh, as an Arab intellectual, as a public intellectual, as a philosopher, uh, I would submit that he has made a key role, a key contribution to the great awakening that we have witnessed in the last 10 months. And I'm going to say a few words about why, not just in terms of the classroom, but more than that. Uh, a few weeks ago, the New York Times published a piece titled, Why Arab Intellectuals Did Not Roar, Did Not Bark, implying that the great awakenings that we have witnessed are not driven by great intellectual ideas produced by Arab intellectuals. This is the premise of the act, is that somehow, somehow revolutions, great revolutions and awakenings, you have a petition, you have a manifesto, and that would really serve as the spark that basically produce great events like the events we have witnessed in the last 10 months. If the correspondent of the New York Times had bothered to really take a look at the history of ideas in the Arab world in the last uh, 100 years, he would have realized that many intellectuals, many scholars, many philosophers, against great odds, defied the dominant political and religious patterns of thought in the Arab world, truly, uh, in the last 100 years. Against great odds, in the really darkest moments of the Arab world, uh, uh, there have been great minds and intellectuals, basically, who are roaring uh, uh, and barking, and, and, and questioning the very patterns of traditional religious and social thought. Take Professor Al-Azm, for example. In the late 1960s, he published two seminal texts. Uh, one is called Al-Naqd al-Zati Ba'at al-Hazima, which is self-criticism after the defeat, 1967, and he would be delighted to sign the book afterwards if he would like to purchase a copy of the book. Uh, when did it come out in English? Just now. And his second book, 
is naqd al-fikr al-dini, a critique of religious thought. I don't have the time to really highlight and lay out the basic arguments of the two texts. Uh, again, uh, Professor Al-Azm uh, challenged the dominant patterns of thinking in the Arab world, both intellectual, religious, uh, and he also called on Arab citizens to embrace democracy, gender equality, um, and science to achieve uh, progress. I think his books, his two books, and I'm truly not exaggerating, uh, represented a turning point uh, in nourishing a political culture of self-criticism. Because the two books came after that dark moment many Arabs called and Max, the defeat after the Arab uh, defeat in the uh, 1967 war. And he was not the only one. Take Constantine, Zurayr, take Nazar Qadbani, take Adonis. I mean, dozens of scholars and poets and writers. And long before him, uh, the New York Times correspondent, I mean, read Taha Hussein and Abdul Hayim Razak. And, and the great liberal minds who are really basically barking and roaring in order to basically bring about a renaissance uh, in the Arab world. And I think if, if the New York Times correspondent really had taken the time, he would have realized uh, that Arab intellectuals and scholars and uh, uh, philosophers uh, have been barking um, over the last hundred years nonstop in order to bring about uh, the new awakenings that we have witnessed in the last 10 months. Uh, please join me in welcoming an Arab intellectual uh, who has never stopped roaring uh, and barking and who has also, I really believe, uh, produced and supplied uh, some of the uh, currency that has bankrolled the great Arab awakening in the last 10 months. Uh, thank you very much for words. Uh, this was <laughs> more than I certainly deserve. Uh, I am certainly very grateful for the invitation. And indeed, I am greatly honored by this beautiful presence here, uh, inviting me to speak about your formal invitation, about apropos of the Arab revolutions on nationalism, Islamism, and liberalism. Uh, filled me with a lot of uh, fear and trembling because to deal with all these three in one shot uh, uh, does fill you with fear and trembling but I you know, promise to do my best about that. Now I will start with a note of caution uh, given the fact that the overall topic of this series of lectures, as I understood from Professor Fawaz, speaks of a new era of politics inaugurated by the unfolding of the Arab Spring. If, in fact, we Arabs are on the verge of a new era of politics, I find it then necessary to draw the serious attention of the newly emerging forces of the Arab Spring to two highly related, deeply ingrained, and highly regressive tendencies in Arab political life in general. The first tendency, as past experience has shown, is for Arab political changes and shifts to proceed in spite of inflated rhetoric 
and hyper hyperbolic discourses to proceed on the basis of the famous French maxim, which says, plus ça change, plus c'est la même chose. The second tendency can be summarized in a few telling words. The persistence of the ancien regime. No matter what, and even after the revolution has worked itself out. We can already see the persistence of the Ancien Regime asserting itself in Egypt now and in Cairo, Cairo's Tahrir Square opposing that. And Cairo's Tahrir Square, in a certain sense, is the paradigm for all the other Tahrir Squares of the Arab world uh, during this last period. It is clear to me now that the military ancien regime in Egypt sacrificed a part of itself in order to save the rest of itself. Another means of persistence is for the ancien regime to tactically withdraw to its barracks and leave the front stage to civil society civil politicians, political parties, and electoral politics, but still wielding power behind the scenes. In other words, we may very well have in Egypt a situation similar to the one that prevailed in Turkey before the Justice and Development Party won power electorally, electorally in the country. That is without the utmost careful attention of these two, to, to attention to these two regressive ingrained tendencies in Arab political life, the, the inauguration of a new era of Arab politics where various Arab peoples may have finally found their voice and are in the process of affirming it. This new process will be hindered, distorted, and even reversed. <laughs> Let me add that the worst and most damaging form of the persistence of the ancien regime is when it persists in the very lives, behavior, habits, and decisions of the revolutionaries themselves. Actually, this has been a very common and prevalent Arab failure, as we all ought to know from our own experiences with past Arab revolutions or so-called revolutions and past Arab revolutionaries. Now I move on to confess that the unfolding of the Arab Spring often takes me back to what I had learned and got to know about classical European revolutionary politics and the intellectual energies expended on the theorization of those politics. Tahrir Square experiences seem to me to come nearest to the venerable European uh, 
debates, theories, and practices of the general strike. The revolution in Syria has no Tahrir Square as yet. The Syrian revolutionary experience now seems to come closest to the theory and practice of the revolutionary focus, especially as first expounded by Regis Debray in his early work, A Revolution in the Revolution. Again, the revolution in Syria is often accused of being spontaneous, leaderless, and lacking in strategy. But then is there not in all this an echo of classical European revolutionary politics, debates, and, and controversies over the role of the leading, highly organized vanguard party as against the natural spontaneity of the revolutionary masses? Do not the formation and rise of the Syrian Tensiqiyat, that is, the local coordinating committees, does not this ring a bell of sorts? Ring a bell of sorts. In some European minds, as they seem to come nearest to the again venerable idea of local revolutionary councils that operate regardless of what the traditional political organizations, opposition groups, and personalities say or do. In Syria today, these tensiqiyat lead and energize the street power of the revolution and are responsible for sustaining the, on the whole, nonviolent character of the Antifada against military rule, martial law, the police state that Syria has been for the last half century. Given the spontaneity of these tensiqiyat, still they have been able to knit themselves into a national network continually in touch with similar activists, both in Syria, the Arab world, as well as the wide world beyond. Using with great expertise the most up-to-date electronic forms of communication to further their revolutionary agenda, they have been able as well to frustrate the military regime's efforts to block and suppress the flow of information. They achieved that by sustaining a steady flow of real-time images and vital pieces of information concerning what is actually taking place on the ground all around the country. One last reflection concerning these kinds of comparisons. The revolution in Syria today reminds me very strongly of the Arab revolutionary politics of the 50s and 60s of the last century, particularly Egypt and Syria. And remember that Egypt and Syria formed at that time a short-lived union called then the United Arab Republic. 
The major enemy of the revolutionaries, activists, and progressives of those days was called Tahaluf al-Ikhtar wal-Bourgeoisie. That is the alliance of the feudal lords with the high bourgeoisie of the time. An alliance that once dominated the politics, power, and wealth of those countries to the detriment of everyone else. Now I can say with confidence that today's revolution in Syria or intifada in Syria is again directed against a similar alliance of new military feudal lords with a state-formed high bourgeoisie which arrogantly, vainly, haughtily, and insolently dominates the politics, powers, and wealth of the country to the detriment of everyone else as well. An alliance that I once called in its earlier stages the merchant military complex that really rules Syria, while the activists and commentators of a younger generation, that is the activists and commentators of today, have come to call the merchant military complex al-murakkab siyasi al-amni al-mali that is the political security financial complex conspicuously absent uh, from the Arab Spring and from its Tahrir squares and its revolutionary focus in Syria are the traditional cries, slogans, demands, and banners of good old Arab nationalism, especially as we have known it over the, uh, peer, the, the, the famous nationalist period of the last century. In, it was in its heyday in the early post-colonial post era uh, in Egypt and Syria. So just as no banner was raised anywhere from Tunis to Cairo to Tripoli, Libya to Sana'a to Manama Bahrain and to Hamas Syria, no banner was raised saying Islam is the solution. Similarly, no banner was incite either saying Arab unity is the solution. Actually, it is remarkable that what was on exhibit through the Arab Spring are metamorphosed and both more interesting and more sublimated expressions of a different kind of Arab unity than usual or than we have been uh, accustomed to. First, the Arab regimes being put to the test by the antifadas of their peoples showed a peculiar kind of official Arab unity. After years of vociferous rhetoric about the basic unity of Al-Ummah Al-Arabiyya, the Arab nation, and about its unifying historical commonalities, 
such as language, religion, ethnicity, culture, and shared destiny, and all the rest. These same Arab regimes seemed united in going on a rhetorical binge, emphasizing Arab particularities, peculiarities, uniquenesses, singularities, and so on. So all of a sudden, we hear, instead of the uh, traditional Arab nationalist discourse and rhetoric, we hear the tumultuous official Arab governmental claims that Egypt is not Tunisia, and that Libya is not Egypt or Tunisia, and that Syria is neither Tunisia, nor Egypt, nor Libya, and so on. All this at a time when Egypt was never more similar officially to Tunisia, Bahrain, and Libya than in these revolutionary days. So just as the revolting Bahraini citizen wants reform that provides him with a constitutional monarchy and a prime minister that is not appointed by the royal palace, but produced by the actual political arena and its balance of forces. Similarly, the revolting Egyptian and Syrian citizen wants in his turn a reform that provides him with a genuine constitutional president of the republic and a prime minister not appointed by presidential fiat but actually produced by the democratic political arena of his country. Thus I say, for a relatively long time, the Arabs did not feel the closeness, similitude, and unity of the Arab countries as to their processes, challenges, blockages, tyrannies, social movements, and possible solutions as the Arab feels them these days. We can also say that the unity of the Arab states as police states and their similarities as tyrannical regimes were never as manifest as during the Arab Spring. The Arab unity in despotic rule and in the realities of oppression was certainly on exhibit as never before. Please note as well how the Arab unity of the regimes rushed with extreme anxiety and unmistakable panic to take refuge in mega conspiracy theories to explain away what in the end they brought upon themselves. All this after the incessant efforts that regimes of tyranny and the coercion states that they run had worked hard to present themselves as the center and locus of the most rational, enlightened, inclusive, patriotic, and civilized tendencies in Arab societies. Societies that are still, they say, plagued by vertical sectarian, ethnic, tribal, and regional divisions, which cause the fragmentation of the peoples and act to reinforce their backwardness and anachronism. 
we saw those very Arab regimes united in clinging mechanically, repetitively, and neurotically to the fables of conspiracy explanations and interpretations, and persisting, at any rate, with the Kafkaesque absurdities of their delirious logic. It is certainly significant that it was not the Tahrir Square revolting masses that resorted to conspiratorial justifications. Although many of us had accused those same masses of being enamored of conspiracy theories at times to the point of dementia. The Arab unity of the top dogs showed itself best in such united policies as official willful, willful blindness, arrogance, and denial in devising a security solution for each protest, demand, and demonstration, and in treating popular demands as nothing more than subversion, rebellion, treachery, and betrayal. This is why I can confidently repeat that the unity of the Arab states as police states and their similarities as tyrannical regimes were never as manifest as during this Arab Spring. The Arab Spring showed as well the emergence of another type of Arab unity welling up from below this time. This kind of popular Arab unity was never more evident than in the resounding shout, reverberating from Tunis to Egypt to Libya to Yemen to Syria, al-Shaab yuridu isqat al-Nizam. The people want to overthrow the regime. Since when such words as the people want had meant anything at all in our Arab world. Another important manifestation of Arab unity from below, that is from the world of the underdogs, not the top dogs, is to be found in the fact that the charisma of the revolutionary moment shifted from the usual concentration on a single and unrivaled leader to the flow and diffusion of the assembled masses in the many Arab Tahrir squares, making the congregation itself the true charismatic moment of the revolution and of change. This important development is certainly new for us Arabs and for our modern social political history. For this reason, the Tahrir squares in Tunis Cairo, Sana'a, Manama, Benghazi were unified, for example, by immense civil participation of women and the visible presence of children, boys and girls. This, is ex this in extremely conservative societies and cities. In addition, they were unified by various forms of art, innovative forms of expression, music performances, songs, plays, dances, balloons, prayers, satirical cartoons, sarcastic comments, 
and critical graffiti. Generally, all that was done with happy faces relatively. This in spite of the wholesale use of aggressive thugs, deadly militias, indiscriminate regression, and live ammunition. There was something of a carnivalesque spirit and practice. And I use carnivalesque here very much in the Bakhtinian sense of carnival mocking and deflating the pretension of high power and oppression. And this is something which is certainly unheard of in the history of modern Arab political demonstrations and forms of mass political protest. The charismatic moment of the Arab Spring showed a high degree of maturity, trying to transcend the alarmist scenarios promoted, reinforced, and put into practice for a long time by the regimes, by the top dogs of the regimes. I mean the scenarios that put our societies before such drastic, harsh, and inescapable choices as either the continuation of the despotic regimes, their martial law, permanent state of emergency, and their security apparatuses in place, or the inevitable vertical disintegration of our societies along religious, sectarian, ethnic, regional, and tribal lines with what all this means in terms of social discord and strife. If I said, if I, as I said earlier, Arab nationalism and the usual ideas about Arab unity were conspicuously absent from the Arab Spring commotion. Still, it remains undeniable that political Islam proved to be conspicuously present. And the talk is all about Islam, Islamism, the Muslim brothers, Salafis, Salafism, fundamentalism, and the spontaneous natural religiosity of the masses of Tahrir squares everywhere. A good way to start the discussion of this issue is to take off from Bernard Lewis's celebrated essay of the 70s of the last century titled The Return of Islam. Now, the most important question which Lewis fails to address in his essay, The Return of Islam, is where did Islam go? Let me hasten to clarify that for Lewis, Islam really neither goes nor returns, but it simply reverts to type. In other words, Islam here is presented as an expressive totality with a constant core which manifests itself and infuses every bit, piece, and part of that totality. The movements, processes, drifts, and tugs and pulls of history may temporarily affect the surface of that expressive totality 
and introduce such abnormalities and distortions in it, such as nationalism, socialism, populism, modernism, Marxism, secularism, reform, and so on. But in the end, the totality reverts to type and remains faithful to its transcendental core, eventually shaking off all these foreign distortions and abnormalities in the process. So, homo islamicus remains homo islamicus, no matter what. And Lewis, Lewis's concept of the return of Islam turns out to be no more than a static euphemism for Islam simply reverting to type as usual. Allow me to add here that the grand Arab debates and controversies of the 60s and 70s, such as in issues as al-asala wal-mu'asara, authenticity versus contemporaneity, al-turath wal-hadatha, heritage versus modernity, al-islam wal-tajdeed, Islam and renewal, in which very prominent public intellectuals and thinkers were involved, like Tayyip Tizini in, 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 in Damascus, Adonis, the famous poet and public intellectual, Muhammad Abdi Jabiri, Hussein Mruwe, uh, and of course uh, uh, others, Hizam Jayyat, Muhammad Arkun, and so on. What I want to say is that these debates over these issues were certainly, in my view, not innocent at all from similar Lewisian assumptions and premises in the first place. Now, one can compare, say, Egypt under Nasser. Now, I will assume a more empirical and realistic approach than Lewis's of reverting to type, of Islam reverting to type. No one can compare, say, Egypt under Nasser and during the nationalist populist phase of Arab socialism that Nasser led. Compare it with the Egypt of Hosni Mubarak without being struck by the fact that there is a return of Islam in some primary manifest sense and by the presence of a new Islamic symbolic reference points for communal and intercommunal identification on the one hand and for differentiation, conflict, and strife on the other. If there is then such an obvious empirical sense of the return of Islam, still the question remains, where did Islam go in the first place for it to return? I will try to give some sort of an answer. During the nationalist populist phase in the post-colonial life of key Arab countries, especially Egypt, Syria, Iraq, and so on, Islam's primacy over the public, institutional, economic, social, legal, and cultural life of key Arab society had eroded unmistakably. Thus, it was strikingly clear that at that time that hardly anything in the society, economy, polity, culture, and law of those states, of those key countries, 
was run according to Islamic precepts, administered along the lines of Sharia law, or functioned in conformity with the theological doctrine and or teachings of Islam, excepting family law. Actually, in, the, in, the, in those countries, the modern secular nationalist calendar, with its new holidays, symbols, monuments, historical sites, battles, heroes, ceremonies, and memorial days, had come to fill the public square, relegating in the process the old religious calendar and its landmarks to the margins of public life. Nasser himself never justified his own regime by appealing to religion or Islam, for example. To give you an idea of the mood prevalent during that phase concerning the issues I am dealing with, I will read out before you a translation of Adonis's manifesto directed to the revolutionary Arabs of those days. Now I quote from Adonis in translation. As revolutionary Arabs, what we aspire to and work for is laying the foundations of a new age for the Arabs. We know that instituting a new age presupposes from the very beginning a complete break with the past. We also know that the starting point of this founding break is criticism the criticism of all that is inherited, prevalent, and common. The, the role of criticism here is not limited to exposing and laying bare whatever prevents the establishment of a new age, but extends to its destruction. Our past is a world of lostness in a variety of religious, political, cultural, and economic forms. It is a realm of the unseen and the illusory, which continues and extends. It is a realm that not only hinders the Arab from finding himself, but also prevents him from making himself. And since the structure of prevalent Arab life and culture is based on religion, Arab life and culture is based on religion, we understand very well the dimensions of Marx's statement to the effect that the criticism of religion is the condition for all other criticism. If we keep in mind also that criticism for Karl Marx is neither mental nor abstract, but practical and revolutionary, then we can say that the revolutionary criticism of the Arab heritage is the condition for any revolutionary Arab action. An end of Adonis's quotation. To press the point more seriously, I shall read out as well a translation of the similar declaration of a prominent Syrian theoretician and activist of those days, Yasin al-Hafiz, reflecting the, the, the same then prevalent mood and spirit, especially concerning religion. This is where Islam went. And I quote now from Yasin al-Hafiz, 
a critique of all aspects of actually existing Arab society and its traditions, a strict scientific and secular critique plus a deep and penetrating analysis is one of the fundamental obligations of the revolutionary socialist Arab vanguard in the Arab homeland. Such a critique alone is capable of readying the conditions which permit the uprooting of all the negative, inhibiting, and disabling aspects of our social heritage. Exploding the traditional frames of Arab society will lead precisely to an acceleration of the, of the rate of work on the construction of a completely modern Arab society. Without this act of exploding, the possibility of a systematic, speedy, and revolutionary development of the traditional intellectual and social structures of the Arab people becomes questionable, if not impossible. At the same time, this will in its turn cast its negative and disabling shadows on serious and swift Arab economic growth." Unquote, end of quote from Yassin al-Hafiz. Now, I think the concept of the return of Islam starts making historical and sociological sense in contrast and in comparison with what was prevalent during the nationalist populist phase of Arab political, social, and cultural life. Given the Arab Spring and its forces now, how do I see the present situation and distribution of forces of this returned Islam, especially in its ideological form known as Islamism? I see right now that the stakes are very, very high in the fierce struggle going on over the definition of Islam and over the control of the meaning of Islam. This in the Middle East in general and the Arab world in particular, of course the Arab world being the heart of Islam, the heartland of Islam. In the following, you will find my classification of the main contending parties in this battle over the definition of Islam and over the control of the meaning of Islam at present and pretty much as the Arab Spring is unfolding. First, we have governments, state apparatuses, established clerical elites and hierarchies, who formulate, propagate, and defend what may be conveniently called official state Islam. The most prominent form of this kind of Islam at present is the petro-Islam of countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran, fully funded and supported all over the world by abundant petrodollars. The official doctrine of Iranian petro-Islam is that of the rule of the jurist, Wilayat al-Faqih while the official doctrine of Saudi Islam says the Quran is our constitution. In other words, we need no constitution of any kind for the kingdom. Absolute monarchy is best for true Islam. Every state in the Islamic world, and the Arab world certainly, has by now developed a version, its own version of official state Islam 
to help serve its vital interests and check those of competing states. Even the secular Kemalist Turkish state has found for itself a benign, elastic, and tolerant version of Islam to toy with as necessary for a while. Let me note that on the whole, Sunni official Islam had proved to be an indispensable ally of the West throughout the Cold War, and particularly in Islam's most literal, scripturalist, and rigorous readings, forms, and applications. Thus, this Islam and the West know each other very well, understand each other very well, and know how to operate together very well. This is why I take with a grain of salt the bombastic complaints they keep making about each other in public. We know also that official Shia Islam in Iraq, specifically Iraq, has come around by now to ally itself as well with the United States and with Western politics and policies in the Arab world and the Middle East in general. The fact that official state Islam uh, I will say something concerning official Shia state Islam in Iran. What we need is to note that official state Islam in Iran has gone a long way in liquidating all the autonomous, independent, dissenting, and marginal forms and varieties of Islam, of Shia Islam, that flourished throughout the history of Shiism by slowly but surely bringing them all under the sway and control of the Iranian state and by absorbing them into official state Islam, a process that had been completed long ago for Sunni Islam under the Ottoman sultans. This process of subjugation and absorption partially explains the eruption of the vigorous protest movement in Iran after the presidential elections of 2009, and explains the participation of many mullahs and ayatollahs in the protest movement. The mullahs and ayatollahs wanted to maintain their autonomy and independence. I come now to the second contending party. On the other extreme side of official state Islam, we have militant insurrectionary Islam with a plethora of factions, fractions, and groupings that resort to spectacular terroristic violence, both locally and on a world scale, under the banner of resurrecting Islam's forgotten imperative of jihad, al-farid al-ghaiba, against all infidels to further their agendas. It is this Islam that occupied the holy shrine in Mecca, I, they occupied the Kaaba in 1979, shaking the Saudi Arabian Kingdom to its foundations, assassinated President Anwar Sadat in Egypt in 1981, in the hope of sparking an Islamic revolution in Egypt, conducted a losing but bloody battle against the Syrian, Egyptian, and Algerian regimes and carried out the assaults of 9-11 inside the United States. Its doctrine of jihad apostatizes takfir, 
all the ruling regimes in the Islamic world as well as all the Muslim societies so ruled, regarding them as no more than nominally Muslim entities and governments that require urgent re-Islamization. The practitioners of this type of Islam summarize their approach in two words, takfir wa tafjir, which translate as apostatize and explode. The logic of takfiri Islam is simple and far-reaching. Following is my attempt to formulate that logic rigorously in the shape of what I shall call the takfir syllogism. Using the Muslim brothers in Egypt as an instance or example, and using Sayyid Qutb as a basis. This is how the takfir syllogism goes. Premise number one. The Muslim brothers were persecuted and tortured in Egypt, this is during Nasser's times, when all they were saying was that God is our Lord, Islam our way, and the Quran our constitution. And when all they were doing was to work for Islam in supposedly a Muslim country and society. Two, those who carried out the persecution of the Muslim brothers and inflicted such pain and suffering on them for saying what they were saying and for doing what they were doing cannot be real Muslims and must be kafirs. This is the first level now of takfir. Three, if these agents of persecution and practitioners of torture are kafirs, then the authorities that appointed them and that commanded them to do what they did must be even more kafirs than those kafirs, which is the third level of takfir. The fourth level, all the elites that do not acknowledge that those authorities are kafirs are themselves kafirs as well. <laughs> Therefore, the popular masses who obey, applaud, and follow these kafir authorities and their kafir elites become kafirs themselves because any approval of kufr is itself a kufr. This is then the takfir of the entire society. And this is the end of my syllogism. Let me make a cautionary remark here that is of particular relevance. I would want to caution here that although Lebanon's Hezbollah and Palestinian Hamas carry some family resemblances to this kind of Islam, they are not to be reduced to it. Both organizations are up to a point remnants of old 20th century type of national liberation movements. With an Islamic mobilizing ideology concentrating mainly on freeing occupied territories, there are real occupied territories, they conduct their struggles and fights locally on the whole, attack only the occupying country, have a carefully defined and achievable goal, are in principle ready and willing to negotiate a deal with the enemy and have strong and highly supportive popular constituencies. However, since Hezbollah is a purely Shia organization 
and Hamas is a purely Sunni movement. Neither of them can qualify for the honorific title of a national liberation movement. This kind of jihadi Islam declared unambiguously its despair from any other method and or means of furthering its vital goals and programs other than the immediate and direct attack on the internal and the external enemy as violently, extravagantly, spectacularly, and destructively as possible. Heedless of the longer term chances of success or failure of such attacks, contemptuous of their self-destructive consequences, and dismissive of their social, political, and economic fallout, even on Islam and Islamism itself. In fact, the general outlook and tactics of this kind of Islam bear, in my view, a lot of resemblances to the outlook and tactics of Europe's left-wing armed insurrectionary factions and fractions of the 1970s, such as the Action Directe in France, the Badermeinhof gang in Germany, who, for those who were, are too young, kidnapped the industrialist Hans Martin Schleier in a most spectacular manner and assassinated him in the most provocative way, the Italian Red Brigades, who in their turn kidnapped and assassinated Aldo Moro, then the dean of Italy's politician and statesman. They did it in no less a spectacular and provocative fashion. In other words, what we have on our hands here is a kind of action direct Islam. Opting for blind, spectacular, and violent forms of jihad. Obviously, these two sorts of jihad, the example of the European and ours, the, 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 the Muslim, share, obviously, they share a preference for shortcut solutions such as assassinations, hostage-taking, kidnappings, and suicide bombings, over long-term political work and the patient elaboration of credible alternatives and programs to the status quo. I suppose that the American equivalents for that period would be the action direct of the weathermen. Jerry Rubin's manifesto of 1970, do it and the resulting cries of the Watts riots in 1965, burn, baby, burn. Finally, I come to the third main contender in the fierce struggle over the definition and control of the meaning of Islam, and this is middle-class commercial Islam represented primarily by the bourgeoisies of various Muslim and Arab countries and led by an assortment of agencies such as the chambers of commerce, industry, agriculture, multiple forms of Islamic banking, investment houses, venture capital, and so on. Insofar as these middle classes form the backbone of civil society in their respective Middle Eastern countries, their Islam becomes the Islam of civil society in general. It is an Islam that is moderate, conservative, and good for business. And certainly not to be confused with either the Islam that is good for absolute power 
or the other Islam that is good for violent eruptions without a cause. It abhors the salvific projects of the radical secular left, no less than the similar projects of the radical Islamic right. Generally speaking, this Islam organizes itself around the notion of civil society and its empowerment and around an emerging quasi-consensus calling for some respect for human rights, a measure of democratic rule, something of an independent judiciary, the end of martial law, and the end of the state of siege imposed on any one of our countries. A model for the hegemony of this kind of Islam is to be found today in Turkey under the rule of the Justice and Development Party there. The impact and lure of the Turkish example are already being powerfully and widely felt in the Arab world. Again, the Arab world is the heartland of Islam. Politically, this Islam is of decisive importance at present because Turkey is now the only Muslim country with a developed and explicit secular ideology, tradition and practice, and also the only major Muslim society to produce a seemingly democratic Muslim political party, something like Europe's Christian democratic parties, they certainly present themselves that way, capable of ascending to power electorally and peacefully without a catastrophe befalling the whole polity as happened elsewhere. This novel achievement of middle class, good for business Islam, showed itself capable of bringing the Turkish military establishment finally under democratic civilian control. So Arab Islamic justice and development political parties are already mushrooming in various Arab countries and states. Therefore, my own anticipation is that when currently turbulent Arab states and societies stabilize and to some extent democratize, it will be some version of middle-class, good-for-business Islam that will float to the surface. Thank you very much. Much food for thought. Uh, unfortunately, we have just half an hour. So uh, we'll take uh, four questions every round and uh, we'll start here this question I thank you for your talk um, I wanted to sort of get into this I guess notion of labeling Islam could you um, do so the, the, I'm you, la sorry. La labeling can you hear yeah, me now my hearing is not very good okay so, sorry yeah so labeling Islam so yeah. the good for business Islam the jihadist Islam the, is it fair to even label Islam as this very fluid um, concept, and, or rather, is it better to label Muslims who practice in a certain way, uh, in, in, you know, instead of sort of clumping the whole religion? Okay, may I may I comment on that? Yeah, of course. We have four questions, and then you'll have time. Oh, okay, okay, okay. 
at least. All right. Thank you very much. Um, you have spoken with a hint of uh, admiration uh, about uh, uh, the Syrian poet Adonis. Uh, but Adonis uh, came out as uh, he had a very conservative position over the uh, uprisings in Syria. Why do you think that is so? Well, uh, whereas he was supportive of the past. Thank you. A question, please, for the young woman. Uh, well, uh, uh, first of all, I'd like to thank you for this interesting presentation. And my question is uh, about the sub-identities. Don't you think that uh, the issue of sub-identities and the minority concerns is going to burn the flower of the so-called Arab Spring? I'm sorry, I didn't get it. Would you, I, would, would you, you know, if you will explain yeah. to me, if you would, you, would you repeat the question? Please? It's my Maybe fault. It's my hearing. It's uh, no, you sorry. don't worry about the issue of sub identities and the minority concerns. Please, yeah, I yeah. Don't yeah. you? Uh, to what extent it's going to affect the the, the Arab uprising? The question the of identities. Sub identities. Yeah. The question is, how, yeah, to what extent okay. will yeah. sub-identities basically yeah, 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 affect yeah, okay, the, the okay, process okay. of the Arab awakenings? One more question, the first round, the, last, the gentleman at, at the last round. Hi, Professor. Thank you very much for your lecture. Um, I have two questions. One is the role of uh, geopolitics, international geopolitics, in the current Syria uh, uprising. And the other question is, whether the uprising in Syria can really be transformed into Sunni versus Alawite struggle. Thanks. So the floor is yours. Did you get the question? The, 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 the role of geopolitics, to what extent oh, oh, the, in, the, in the Syrian? In, yes. And what was your second question? If the uprising is taking the form of Sunni versus Alawite in Syria? The sectarian divide in Syria, how yeah. do you read it? How do you see it? Well, uh, to take up the first question, see, you spoke about labeling. What I am labeling is not, this is not labeling in the trivial sense of labeling, okay? You are giving basically accounts and descriptions of forces that are already on the ground, that are active, that are exploding, that are doing takfir, or that are doing business, or that states that you know are creating their own Islam their own official so this is not labeling in you know uh, some nominalist uh, 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 trivial sense but is actually referring to uh, either institutions or forces that are affecting you know our lives affecting the lives of countries, affecting the lives of international uh, uh, relations, and uh, uh, and so on. So I I don't see uh, why you object to this kind of labeling. How can we discuss without labeling, even without sometimes stereotyping? I think even stereotyping is necessary because it's a form of abstraction to be able to do any serious discussion or investigation. Uh, uh, on, on, on these issues. Uh, on uh, the question on, uh, on Adonis, well, uh, now, Adonis, I, of course, read his famous manifesto of, uh, the, for the revolutionaries. Uh, and uh, when the 
Islamic revolution in Iran occurred in 1979. Adonis, Adonis's Shiism woke up, okay? <laughs> and unfortunately, okay, uh, uh, his uh, uh, sectarian uh, allegiances and loyalties overrode his ideals and his overrode uh, the values that he set himself up and his journal mawaqif uh, to serve and to promote in uh, Arab life. And that has continued with him. And there was a big, of course, controversy between me and him on very much this. The way he, he, he approached the explanation of the revolution in Iran, not, not the question of being with or against the revolution. We were all for the revolution. But the way he approached it, he approached it literally in medieval terms. When he wrote about it, he wrote about it in terms of prophecy and, 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 and imamates and imams and ayatollahs and, 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 uh, and so on. And he forgot all about you see, the, the, uh, uh, what he quoted Marx as saying that you know, the beginning of all criticism is the criticism of uh, uh, religion. Then the next phase, when the Rushdie affair occurred, in the, and which culturally dominated the world in the, in the 90s, okay, uh, Adonis never said a word in defense of the writer, of the author, of his right to live and continue and, and, and so on. And of course, this was another point of uh, con contention uh, 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 with him. Uh, and this has continued, and of course he didn't say anything. Uh, here you had a, an author who was condemned to death on television, okay? And Adonis says nothing about it because, because you know, again, as I said, as it's, his Shiism woke up. And this is where the question of sub-identities comes in, okay? And it overrides, okay, uh, the identity that uh, you, you, you would like your country, your people, yourself to eventually acquire and become. Okay? Uh, uh, when it came to the Arab Spring in Syria, unfortunately, uh, what happened with Adonis is this. I, my debate with him here is in terms of the very values that he himself raised and ideals that he cherished in his journal Mawaqif, in which I was very involved in founding and writing in and so on, and, 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 uh, and, and so on which said Mawaqif للحرية للتغيير للإبداع. Mawaqif that is stands or positions uh, for freedom, change, and creativity. And now I see that the moment that freedom comes near Syria, or Syria comes near freedom, uh, change comes near Syria, Syria comes near uh, uh, change, we have the ibda'ah of the tansiqiyat in Syria, okay? And suddenly Adonis falls into stammers and stutters, and yes, but, and on the one hand, and on the other hand, and starts distributing uh, uh, his uh, advice to the both parties as if they were peers or, 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 or equals, those who have the tanks and those who 
who have only their bodies and uh, 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 and themselves as if you know they were uh, 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 equal parties to the uh, uh, to the fight. Of course, that made me extremely angry with that kind of uh, uh, of approach. And I, of course, uh, expressed my my views as I usually do uh, uh, quite openly on uh, uh, on this. Now, here comes the role of is a very good example. Adonis is a very good example. Uh, when I discussed this thing about Adonis, uh, they asked me, "Why do you think he did that?" and my answer was exactly is that the sub-identity or sub-civil, sub-Syrian, sub-national identity, which goes back to sect and religion, the, the, the primordial, okay, uh, 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 simply overwhelmed him in a moment uh, 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 like that. And uh, I, I hope that, you know, uh, in uh, places like uh, 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 Syria now, and this is the, the, the re relevant uh, question, uh, now Syria is extremely mobilized along sectarian lines, basically Sunni Alawi. There's no question about that. And uh, uh, we, do, we don't want to uh, delude ourselves about uh, that, uh, that fact. But what is greatly admirable for me is that after all that happened, okay, we did not yet go into civil war. That's the question. Okay? Is that how come after nine months of all this and we, we still the amount of actual civil strife or civil clash between uh, the one Cartier in Hamas and another Cartier is still at a minimal level. And I tell you, if you had asked me when the Arab Spring started in Tunis. Suppose it comes to Syria, what would happen? I would have said, from my life in Damascus and Syria and so on, I would have said probably the people of Hama would go out and take their revenge on the Alawis who persecuted them and destroyed their city in 1982. And you cannot imagine what a great relief to me and to a lot of people like me when that did not happen, when, when we, we turned out to be wrong on, uh, 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 on this, that the people of Hama actually did not enter the fray, did not enter quite late, actually. They, you know, they, they, they kept quiet and so on for a variety of, uh, uh, of, of, of reasons. Uh, uh, and uh, this was a, 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 great, a great relief, you know, hoping that we will... Uh, uh, the Arab Spring in Syria, we know, at some point for, will not descend to the level of primary primitive uh, instincts of uh, revenge and vengeance and uh, settling scores and uh, 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 and so on. And everybody knows who is following anything about the Middle East that it is the interest of the regime itself. Okay. Uh, to uh, make the war look like a sectarian uh, war, because that will give it, you know, before the international community, before the Arab League, and so on, uh, the pretext and uh, uh, excuse to, 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 to suppress it. Now, when, when about the uh, uh, ge geopolitics, uh, now, let me say that 
the, the big geopolitics, well, I mean, I think when, you know, the Russians and the Chinese and so on uh, intervene in this, and they are dealing, they are really dealing with, with, uh, uh, with, with the West, with Europe and so on, and they are dealing at a level where things like, you know, Syria and Lebanon and so on, these are, as we say in Arabic, frata, they are small change. <laughs> I, 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 I don't think it makes too much difference uh, if Assad, for, you know, rules, continue to rule, or, you know, the Sunni majority comes and, uh, uh, and rules uh, 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 or not. Uh, for us, the importance of uh, geopolitics uh, 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 right now is the uh, interference uh, uh, or intervention in a variety of ways and methods uh, in the uh, uh, struggle going on in, uh, in, in, in Syria uh, to help stop you know, the, uh, uh, the killing and get rid of this murderous uh, regime hopefully through the internal siege on it, the Arab siege now, and then the international siege on uh, top of it, we, uh, 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 we get there. Another round? <coughs> Shall we start? One of my students, yes. Um, uh, does the rise of political Islam today in the Middle East mean the death of Arab nationalism? And can Arab nationalism and political Islam go hand in hand? Thank you. Uh, thank you for the lecture. Um, I wanted to basically ask, uh, although I agree to the fact that it's uh, mostly Islamism is good for business, as you say, uh, how do we prevent uh, that being hijacked by, let's say, the radical uh, right uh, in, in Egypt or in anywhere like we we saw we've seen this happening in in Iran in 1979 where there was it wasn't only the radical ayatollahs it was also the the other other side or the mo more moderate that were just kicked out of it. We have a question here or two that, questions. That, 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 yeah, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll explain. Yeah. 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 <coughs> Uh, thank you. Very interesting talk. Uh, two things. Uh, if you're correct, that is going to be good for Islam, um, uh, uh, good for business Islam. Uh, how would that affect the Israeli-Palestinian problem in the Middle East? And secondly, could the Taliban, who have got a very sort of ideological idea of what Islam is, could they ever be reconciled to this good for business Islam, or is that completely separate type of Islam? Could you again repeat the second part of your question? Oh, the second part is the Taliban's ideology of Islam is a certain version of Islam, there are certain meanings. Could they ever be reconciled to a good for business Islam or is that completely off the map? And that they're, uh... All right, thank you. Yes, please. Uh, thank you for your uh, lightning lecture. My question is uh, the timing of the Arab Spring. Why it is now? You know, the Arab uh, tyrannical regimes have been around for three, four, five decades. Why it is now? The timing. Why in 2011? Is it, he means, is it, what was the spark? Was there a particular single cause effect? Why, why did the Arab awakenings, I mean, why have they taken place now as opposed yeah. to say two? And his other question was, uh, 
Uh, you, you talked about basically merchant Islam and how merchant Islam, yeah. he, he said, could the it be... Good business Islam. Yes, could it be hijacked by radical elements? Um, he's talking about how the revolution, Iran revolution, was basically Islamicized. We have four questions. There. Well, first of all, concerning the rise of Islam and, and the death of uh, Arab uh, uh, nationalism, I don't think there is a direct causal connection uh, between the two, because the really uh, uh, decisive event in the decline and eventual demise of Arab nationalism was the defeat of 1967. Uh, and I don't think, you know, and really uh, the, the uh, rise again of Islamic fundamentalism and so on came to fill the void that suddenly uh, 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 appeared uh, af after the, uh, the catastrophic defeat because the nationalist populist program that Nasser led and the Ba'ath and, and so on uh, did not sort of slowly taper off uh, and uh, come to an end uh, naturally and anything. It, it, it was very abruptly cut, cut off. And, and hence, you know, a huge vacuum was uh, 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 created. And of course, then, of course, uh, uh, that kind of Islam rushed in uh, to fill that uh, uh, vacuum. So I, I, I wouldn't say that the uh, uh, rise, rise of Islam is in, in any way causally connected directly to the death of uh, 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 Arab uh, nationalism. That's my overall answer to uh, your uh, uh, question. Uh, well, the possibility of you know uh, pre predicting the uh, path of revolutions is an, you know an impossible uh, uh, project. That uh, the revolution may be you know at some point hijacked by some some group and so on. I, I, I will always keep it as an open option or open uh, question. Um, now, in, in a place like uh, Syria, I don't, I don't see the embryos of any forces uh, that are capable of uh, doing that at, uh, uh, at present. Uh, the, uh, the ones that are, I think, most the candidates for eventually taking over uh, are the merchant side of the merchant military complex. Once they, because the merchant military complex uh, is a, uh, an, an alliance of interests, but it is the interests mainly uh, of the military that are being served rather than uh, the interests of the merchants because the merchants have to keep to pay tributes and have to pay commissions and have to keep, in order to be able to continue doing business. So I think they will be the ones that will uh, 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 take off. This is why I said that it will be their kind of Islam that would uh, float to the uh, uh, surface if, if we do have uh, uh, genuine you know, uh, uh, electoral politics, elections, parliament, uh, uh, etc. And especially given the impact and uh, influence of the Turkish uh, uh, model of, of, of Turkish uh, Islam. 
whether Taliban and business Islam can be uh, reconciled, I, I think in, in, in principle my answer is no. Uh, the, uh, uh, because, you know, unless it's the business of, you know, smuggling and uh, <laughs> drugs and, 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 and so on, then the two may, may, be, may, may, come, may come together. But, but I think, you know, a legitimate regular business, uh, the way the merchants of Aleppo and Damascus do it, uh, for them to adopt something like Talibanish Islam is, I think, very, very far, uh, very far-fetched. Now, the question why now, uh, uh, you know, I, I have something to say about that. To ask why now, in English sounds very innocent, but in Arabic it's terrible. <laughs> because when you say, لماذا في هذا الوقت بالذات, you are already starting a conspiracy theory. Okay? <laughs> the moment you say, لماذا في هذا الوقت بالذات, it's a conspiracy theory. It means there is some invisible hand behind the whole thing of the United States, of the, the World Zionist Organization, and so on, and, and so on. So the question, why exactly at this time? Well, why not at some other time? I really t tend to you know, dismiss it as not very meaningful. Okay? Especially when, in Arabic, I argue with it, but basically arguing against the uh, implicit conspiracy theory behind it. And it was, in a way, heartening to see that the ones who rushed to uh, uh, embrace uh, uh, conspiracy theory, theories this time were not the ordinary people or the uneducated uh, uh, and, the, and the unwashed, but it was the regimes themselves, you know, the elites themselves uh, who, who, who proceeded to uh, embrace the conspiracy theory. So another round, shall we? Yes. We, we? We have two questions here, and, and we'll have a question. Taking into account specifics of Egyptian society, will the Coptic minority be able to rely on protection from the state, or will the Christians leave as they did from the occupied territories? Please. Uh, you talked at the beginning um, about the regressive tendencies that are taking place currently uh, in, the, in the Arab world and from what I see at the moment is uh, likely tensions that are going to continue between the existing governments and those who oppose the government. Yet at the end of the talk, from what I understand that you said, it was that the middle class good for business Islam is likely to succeed. Um, I'm, wondering, I'm wondering what the basis is for your optimism that that's likely to be the result and what kind of time scale you have in mind given the existing turmoil that seems to be likely to carry on for some period of time. Uh, all right, would you, would you like to repeat? Uh, speak a bit I'm sorry louder. about that. No, no, you're not. A, I mean, I can translate, but I would, I'd rather listen <laughs> yeah. to what he has uh, to say. Repeat the question. Yeah, um, you, said, you spoke at the beginning about the regressive tendencies that were taking place at the moment in the Arab world. Plus a change, plus le même chose. And from what I see at the moment, there's likely to be um, ongoing tension between those from the Ancien Regime and those who oppose that. 
Now, from what I understand of what you said at the end, it was that it was most likely that the Islam, which you defined as good for business Islam, is likely to succeed. Now, I'm, what I'm asking you is what the basis is for your optimism that that's likely to be the result and what kind of time scale you have in mind given the ongoing problems that exist in the Middle East. Uh, the young woman next to you, please. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering about the continuities between the three different groups of, uh, like three battling on the definition of Islam, because as I think of it, I think of the example of Lebanon, for example, and I would see Hariri's project as good for business Islam, and Salafist uh, uh, Islamist groups uh, are known, but both are funded by Saudi Arabia. So there is that sort of seemingly antagonistic relationship maybe, but also some sort of symbiotic continuity, and one has more money than the others and feeds into it. Would you like to repeat the question? Would you please repeat the question? Uh, and speak slowly and, and you know. I'm just asking about the continuities between good for business Islam, um, state Islam, as you call which, them. Which Islam, the continuity of which Islam? The three, the three oh, definitions, yeah. Yeah, especially since the, the three di different groups that you discussed, yeah, yeah, yeah. especially since state Islam is known to be with the money from petrodollar funding different other types of Islam worldwide. Yeah, what she's really saying is that nothing has changed. It's all, I mean, the, 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 is it the same or is it continuity or discontinuity? This is the, uh, we'll come back to it because we have two more questions. Please. Hi, thank you for the talk. Um, I was just wondering, you know, some Orientalists might argue that civil society doesn't really exist in, in the Middle East. Um, and how critical has civil society been in transforming um, in the transformations that we're seeing, particularly, you know, you talk about in Egypt, this sort of flourishing of carnivalesque um, behavior. Um, but in Syria, um, there's been no terrorist square, square, as you say. How important has civil society been to these transformations? What's the role? Yeah, what's the role? Yeah, yeah. Uh, Roger. There's, <clears throat> there's talk of international intervention in Syria. The French are talking about it. And the Turks. The Turks are talking and about it. And the Syrians are talking about it too. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually had a, a, one Friday dedicated to. Uh, the euphemism for it was protection of civilians. Is it a good idea or a terrible idea? <laughs> let's, take, let's take two more questions because, uh, please, yeah. Oh, sorry. The question is, was, is here. Oh, all right. Um, thanks very much for your talk. It was most enlightening. Um, I wonder if it is a support. Would you please speak louder and I will. slower? I will. Please. Um, my question really is Has there been any ideological change at all in the Ba'ath Party, either in Iraq or Syria, the I last four years? I can't hear you myself. That's why. Okay. Can you speak louder, please? I will. I will. Um, the, the, I want by the way, the system in this room is horrible in terms of sound, so it's not your fault. Okay. Um, I wanted to know if you detected any 
uh, ideological changes at all in, in the Ba'ath Party, either in Iraq or in Syria, over the last four decades? Has it responded to social changes? Have you, have you seen or read any kind of ideological shifts within the Ba'athist apparatus, both in Iraq and Syria? Has there any ideological transformation taken place? Uh, one more question. Yes, please. Yes. And that's the final question. Sorry, time is... Um, thank you for a very interesting talk. My question is taking us into the future. Um, um, seeing the change that caused by the Arab Spring, can you? What kind of change of identity you can see in this um, in this nation? And would you think that the West will look at this region differently in the future? Thank you. Have a question? Is there a new identity? Will a new identity emerge out of the turmoil? And how will Western powers basically view this? I think uh, I will you know, say something about that. Uh, I think the identities that are emerging is, for example, uh, for a while there was a kind of competition between what you may call Syrian patriotism and Syrian Arabism. Okay? And now I think the scales have completely tipped in the direction or in favor of the primacy of the Syrian identity, especially given the Kurdish uh, uh, issue. Uh, the Kurdish, uh, I don't want to call it problem. Uh, for example, Berhan uh, Galyoun uh, made a mistake on, on, one, on one of his uh, uh, talks on uh, the satellite uh, TV of, say, comparing the Kurds maybe to the, say, Algerians in France or something like that. It was, it was terrible, okay? And he had to apologize, okay? Uh, now, uh, and the, the probably name of the Arab, Syrian Arab Republic, okay? Uh, well, he's a Kurd, all right? And he's a Syrian. He's not an Arab, okay? And he objects, you know, and when he has his identity card, on know it's written, okay, his name is Kurdish, and then it's written nationality Syrian Arab, all right? But he's not an Arab, he's a Kurd, he, maybe an Armenian, Turkoman, and, and, and you know, uh, a lot of ethnicities in, uh, in Syria. I, I think the new identity that is emerging is a Syrian uh, uh, identity, the Syrian people, uh, made up of, you know, uh, uh, a certain number of Kurds and a certain number of Arabs, certain numbers of Turkomans, and, uh, uh, and, uh, and so on. And that again goes back to uh, the, the, the whole question of, you know, uh, 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 identities. Uh, well, whether the idea of uh, intervention is, you know, a terrible one or a... Now, uh, the, the, the thing is, at the beginning, the idea of some kind of intervention by the West in Syria was spoken about in murmurs, in whispers. And then it became a very wide uh, debate and uh, discussion, and people stopped being afraid of, uh, uh, um, you know, putting 
forth their view that we need intervention. And the commander of the free Syrian army said openly, anyone who thinks that you can overthrow that regime simply by peaceful civil demonstrations is deluding himself, okay? Uh, it, it has to be uh, 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 removed by, you know, uh, uh, by force. Uh, there are a lot of instances. Uh, who removed Pol Pot? Do you remember? Pol Pot, who removed him? It was the Vietnamese army that walked in and took him out and left. Who removed Idi Amin? Again, it was the Tanzanian army that walked in and removed uh, uh, Idi Amin. Uh, of course, who removed Saddam Hussein and so on. So uh, the last instance was in the Ivory Coast. Okay, who removed Gabagbo? I mean, they took him out. The French took him out in his underwear. <laughs> uh, and after all these years of decolonization and the liberation and so on, you know, in order to change the president or install the elected president, the, the, still the French have to go in, French troops, and pull him out. So it, 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 there is, in a sense, that some kind of uh, intervention is being actually called for in uh, uh, Syria because of the stalemate, uh, the inability of the regime to really suppress the intifada, and of course the inability of a peaceful intifada uh, to face, you know, the uh, 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 tanks and armored vehicles uh, uh, of the of, of the regime. Uh, what, whatever you know, and airplanes and and and, and so on. Um, there was a, 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 an interesting question on uh, uh, civil uh, civil society. Uh, after the uh, uh, collapse of the idea of Arab socialism and uh, so on, and the rise of fundamentalism and the fears generated of having to choose between living under either the martial law of the soldiers or the martial law of the Islamists, Okay, which is called Sharia law. Okay, it's also martial law. All right, uh, the there was a move towards the idea of civil society. Okay, as the way out from having to choose between uh, uh, the, the, these these two evils. Okay, of either the martial law of the soldiers or the martial law of the uh, uh, of the Islamists, and. Uh, uh, this is why, on the whole, the Arab left, the big section of the Arab left, has come to adopt a civil society program, defense of human rights, uh, the defense of civil uh, liberties, of uh, elections, electoral laws, and, and so on. Even communist parties have changed completely and have come to adopt a civil society uh, 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 program. And even the Islamists, under the impact of the Turks, have come to speak about Dawla al Madani. Uh, they stopped talking about the restoration of the caliphate, of the immediate application of Sharia law, 
they stop talking about Islam who al-hal because Erdogan does not say Islam who al-hal Erdogan says Europe is the hal okay Europe is the solution not Islam is the is the is the solution jo- joining the European Union is is the uh, uh, is the solution uh, so in 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 this sense uh, there is a you know strong forces uh, uh, now in 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 various arab societies which uh, emphasize the idea of civil society and the civil state the civil state is really a euphemism for a secular state uh, 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 where, where the sharia or the uh, religion of the majority does not become uh, the official uh, 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 religion or madhab or of 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 the state, okay, uh, and this, this is not a a casual matter. It's 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 very serious. For example, in Iraq, why doesn't Malki declare Iraq wilayat al-faqih? Okay, because he knows there will be a civil war. Uh, the, the Sunnah will revolt. They will never accept that. Okay. Uh, uh, and someone like Harith al-Dari, who is the head of the Muslim uh, ulama of Iraq, has become a secularist. He is calling for now a secular state, because of course he doesn't want to, the Sunnis to live under a state which adopts Shia uh, version of uh, Sharia law. Okay. Um, when somebody says something about optimism, well, we go back to the old to the old formula of the pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the will. <laughs> in uh, uh, in this, being involved in, of course, the opposition, the revolution. Uh, uh, for it, I mean, we, you know, it's imperative to to be uh, to some extent optimistic. Uh, we, 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 without, of course, being optimistic in the sense of del- of delusions and uh, 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 illusions. Somebody said something, mentioned Israel in, uh, in, in this, and I'd like to uh, make one last comment uh, about that. As far as Syria is concerned, which is really the main, uh, the main uh, point on, on this, I don't think anybody, either the regime or the Muharada, that is the opposition, really have an idea Okay, what to do about the Golan Heights and how to deal with the... Uh, and I don't think a serious and uh, uh, debate has yet uh, started within the opposition about this matter. And some of us are pushing to, to, uh, to start such a, uh, uh, such a debate. Uh, on how to go about uh, uh, dealing with the uh, Golan Heights problem. Uh, And uh, also in answer to, I think, a uh, good for business Islam, I assume would be more likely to uh, reach a deal with Israel and get back uh, the Golan Heights peacefully, okay, rather than any other form of either Islam or uh, uh, or rule. Okay, um, we are trying to have the opposition now debate uh, this, and 
if if we do have electoral politics in uh, uh, Syria, then uh, some you know political party may have on its program uh, a plan for peacefully negotiating again or resuscitating the negotiations uh, 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 with with Israel in order to come to a deal to retrieve the uh, 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 Golan Heights. Uh, I, I, I hope this will, you know, we, we succeed in starting such a uh, debate. But until now, I can say that no one has really uh, uh, any uh, plan or serious idea about how to deal with that issue. Thank you. Please join me. <laughs> Thank you.